Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in throughout the fall and now into the winter on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet uh, who uh, had an amazing ministry among God's people of his time. He, as we've seen over these first 39 chapters, uh, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are given to uh, encouraging and warning the people of Israel about the coming, how they ought to deal with the coming invasion of the Assyrian army. That uh, God, if they trusted him, repented and trusted him, would turn back this most powerful army and save them. And at the end of 39, he does so. But as 39 heads to a close, another empire is in the, in the works of building, and that's the Babylonians, who are going to be coming towards Israel once again. And so Isaiah, we are today going to be looking at Isaiah 40 which is the seam uh, between two pieces of the book. Most, uh, most scholars divide Isaiah into three major sections. There's Isaiah 1 through 39, dealing with Assyria. There's 40 through 55, dealing with the exiles in Babylon. And then the final 10 chapters, 55 through 65, kind of summing it up and kind of looking big picture at what God's doing in the world. But so, we're moving into this new section where Isaiah's work has gone from primarily challenging the people of Israel to respond by faith in the face of the Assyrians, to now a posture of comforting God's people, given the reality of their exile. He's now looking ahead to the exile and saying, don't let this discourage you or dissuade you from believing in the promise of God, that even in your suffering and in your exile, God can be trusted to save. And so, uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This morning we will be in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him 
and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. One of the great uh, Christmas traditions, one of the great uh, musical Christmas traditions, is the singing of Handel's Messiah, right? That great, beautiful piece of classical music. I know the Jacksonville Symphony Orchestra is performing it next weekend as they do every weekend. Or not every weekend, that'd be a lot. Uh, as they do uh, every Christmas. It was first performed in Dublin in 1742. And it tells the sweeping story of God's redemption. A lot of its texts, its lyrics are almost all scripture verses, and a great many of them come from the book of Isaiah. His assignment, uh, George Friedrich Handel, was to, to narrate the story of God's redemption from Old Testament to New, tracing the coming of the Messiah, culminating, of course, in the famous Hallelujah Chorus. The story of the Messiah is an interesting one, Handel, who had been uh, at the height of popularity and at, and at the height of wealth in that 17th century classical music world, through most of his early life, he had written stately music for the aristocracy and the kings and queens of England and Europe. But later in his life, he found himself out of favor with the courts. He found his music somewhat in disrepute. The glories of his past seemed to be way behind him. And then one night, in despair, he was walking down a London street, his mind fixed between uh, hope and despair, dwelling on what he had been, aware of the, the place that he had fallen to. And then when he walked back into his home and settled in, he discovered that he had been delivered a package, a commission to write a sacred oratorio of church music, the Messiah. And as he began over the next year, it was actually commissioned originally to be an Easter piece, to be performed at Easter, and it's since kind of become more of a Christmas piece. But as he spent about a year working on this music, as he spent about a year letting the words of the prophet Isaiah do their work in his soul, he found himself encouraged and comforted, as though the words of the text pulled him out of his despair and of his depression. And then when he finally presented the Messiah, it was, of course, the crowning achievement of his career. And that story of a man being pulled from despair, set back on his feet through the comforting words of the gospel, is so much of what Isaiah is intending these words to do. In fact, the Messiah, if there's a, if there's a most famous part of the piece other than the Hallelujah Chorus, it's probably that great opening where a voice booms out with the first words of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Comfort my people, says your God. Sometimes this next section of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55, is called the book of comfort because there is so much in this book that is focused on bringing comfort to God's people. Comfort to those who looked ahead to the coming of the Babylonian exile Comfort to those who lived in exile and lived in expectation and now with the comfort of God's redemption. And comfort for us who live in the midst of our own hardships, who live in the midst of our own broken world and broken lives. 
who live too in a type of exile, right? In one way of looking at it, humanity ever since we were sent east of the Garden of Eden have been living a life in exile, living a life in a world that is not our home, living a life estranged from God's presence. And we read Isaiah, the words of this comfort that God too will meet us and return us from our exile, embrace us in love, and gather us to himself. Isaiah brings this message of comfort that's targeted at believers 200 years after he wrote them, who would read them in exile and targeted also towards us. I'll ask as we begin, could you use some comfort in your life? I could use some comfort in my life, right? We all know what it is to be troubled. We all know what it is to be anxious. We all know what it is to be worried and doubting and afraid. We could all use what Isaiah speaks here, comfort, comfort my people. What would it take for you to receive the comfort of Jesus deep in your soul, to know that every bit of you, the parts that you're proud of and the parts that you're ashamed of, are gathered in his love and his grace and his embrace. That we could, as we sing in the hymn, come to Jesus, poor and weary, weak and wounded, sick and sore, and experience his love and his comfort. Well, this passage uh, breaks out into three parts. God invites Isaiah to comfort his people, and then three times over the course of these verses, we hear that a voice cries out. So there's three voices of comfort that Isaiah offers as comfort for his people. Preachers love it when there's three of things, so this is great. So let's listen to these three voices of comfort. The first voice says and encourages us to prepare for God's presence. Verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What this voice in the desert uh, is saying is that God himself is going to return to Jerusalem, that God is going to come on a highway through the wilderness to come back to dwell with his people, and he's going to lead his people with him to dwell with him forever in the temple, right? So it's a prophecy of the return of God's people from exile, that they're going to come on this highway through the wilderness from Babylon to Jerusalem, just like their ancestors had gone on a highway through the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land. They were going to come on a new exodus back to dwell with God, and he himself was going to lead them, that he was going to be the one who gathered them and led them through the wilderness to bring them home. This is the good news of God returning to us, to be reconciled with us so that we can live with him, so that what we've always most longed for, the experience of his presence in unbroken intimacy with God, can be ours forever. We live with this longing for the chasm to be crossed between God and humanity, for our exile to be over, and to rest in God's presence. But before that can happen, Isaiah says that a voice cries out, makes straight the way of the Lord, prepare for his coming. And it's interesting, uh, the gospel writers all together uh, go to this verse to explain the ministry of John the Baptist. 
right? They all liken John's ministry to the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The gospel writers understandably needed to figure out some way to make sense of John the Baptist, right? John was an odd guy. John uh, lived by himself in the wilderness. He covered himself in animal skins rather than taking a snack or packing a lunch when he went to the wilderness. We're told that he ate bugs and wild honey. And his message, his message was one almost entirely of judgment calling to repentance, right? His ministry was repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm not the savior, I'm not the good news guy, he's coming after me. Right, I'm here to bring you a message of preparation, to say grace is coming to you, but you will never be ready to receive grace until you swallow the bitterness of sin and repentance. Right, you won't experience good news until you come to terms with the bad news, that your life is headed in dramatically the wrong direction. And that because of sin, you need to repent, you need to be washed, you need to be made new. So that broken and repentant, you can receive and be prepared for God's grace coming for you in Jesus. John's ministry was a ministry of provocation, stirring up the people, disquieting the people so that Jesus' message of comfort could come. Isaiah's ministry follows a lot of that same, uh, same scope. He was a, a minister both of provocation and of comfort. Right? Just the, the, the chapter just before this, he tells King Hezekiah that his sons will be carried into exile due to his sin. Bad news. But then immediately, the next verse, comfort, O oh, comfort my people. Right? He discomforts and then he comforts. Right, he says, you need to repent. Your sin is, is running amok in your life and it's making a mess of everything. You're in real danger of judgment. But comfort, God hasn't forgotten you. He's making a way for you. He's bringing you his grace. Jesus' ministry in and of itself was a ministry both of discomfort and comfort, wasn't it? That his ministry was one, uh, you, you might have heard, uh, it's been said by so many times, I don't know who first said it at this point. But that his ministry was one of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Right? That as we look at Jesus' ministry, he was constantly uh, discomforting those who were smugly comfortable in their own goodness, in their own wealth, in their own power, in their own righteousness. Right? To the Pharisees, to the teacher of, teachers of the law in Israel, to the priests, to the wealthy, to the rich young ruler. Right? His invitation was one of profound discomfort. It felt like an affliction to them to hear your wealth can't save you, your goodness can't save you, your religion can't save you, your righteousness can't save you. But then his ministry was one of incredible comfort to the poor, to the broken, to the prostitute, to the tax collector, to the sinner, to the lame, to the blind. Right? And he was always doing both of those things at once, bringing discomfort to those who needed to be shaken up. And bringing comfort to those who were already so shaken that they didn't know if they could have a hope. Right? And both of those things go together in Isaiah's ministry and in Jesus' ministry. That you have to receive the discomforting news of our need to repent. Repenting just simply means to turn around. To lay down our sin. 
in order to receive the grace that God offers us. So Isaiah brings this message of comfort, preparing the way, saying, look, make the way straight. Be ready for God's coming. Repent and be ready for his presence. So the first voice is one of preparation and repentance in verse 3. The second verse that cries out in verse 6 cries out a message that we need to know our limits as human beings. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the fields. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When he says all flesh is grass, that means yours too, uh, and mine too. Right? Flesh here is, is standing in for human existence, right? Our lives in this body. We might live a little bit longer than grass and wildflowers, but our lives tend in the same direction. We flower in our youth, we wither, and then eventually we die. Right? That human life is bounded by some very real limits. Right? That we are not in and of ourselves eternal or all-powerful. That in and of ourselves, our lives drift from life to death. Right? I hope this isn't news for any of you. Right? This is what happens to us. Our bodies break down. We run into our limits. I'm preaching today with a sore back because I... Well, because I'm in my 40s and do CrossFit, uh, but because I, was, because I chose to lift a weight that 10 years ago would have been no problem at all. Right now, I'm taking Advil every, you know, every eight hours. Right? Our bodies give in. The beauty of youth fades. The strength of youth fades. The human life, the scriptures are, scriptures are always clear to make a distinction between the creature and the creator. Right, that there is no gap in this world as big as the gap between the creator and the creature. Right, you are closer to the rest of this earthly existence, the other animals and trees, than we are to the eternal, unchanging, omnipotent God. Right, that like them, our bodies give in and break down. You are not... You know, we, theologians will use these big words to describe God, that he's omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. And we tend to live our lives as though we are omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. Omnipotent means that, we, that God can do anything. He is all-powerful. And we tend to live our lives like we can do anything, right? That if we work hard enough, study hard enough, apply ourselves well, work enough hours, burn enough midnight oil, that we can ultimately accomplish anything that we want to. This is so core to what we believe that we preach it to our children. Right? You can be anything you want to be. You can do and accomplish anything you want to accomplish. But that's not true of human life. You live within boundaries. You only have so much smarts, so much ability, so much energy, so many gifts. We tend to live as though we are omnipresent, that we can be everywhere at once. It is not uncommon for me to look at my calendar and go, uh-oh, I'm, I'm in Bay Meadows for a meeting at noon, and then I'm supposed to be in Avondale for a meeting at two, and I, I can't do that. 
or I'm supposed to actually be in two meetings at once, right? We overschedule our lives, planning to be everywhere, all at once, everything to all people. But we can't be omnipresent, and we cannot be omniscient. We can't know everything, right? We can't know every secret. We can't exhaust all knowledge. Only God knows all, is everywhere, and is all-powerful. But what happens to us is that we take what we know is frail and limited, our human existence. But when we actually bump up into those limits, we let it destroy us, right? We let it freak us out. We push ourselves to the point of burnout. We try to manage our lives to the point of anxiety, right? We try to be everywhere to the point of overscheduling ourselves to death, right? And it's not till we run into the limits of ourselves, our bodies break down, our health breaks down, our mental health breaks down, that we go, oh, I am frail. I am weak. I am incapable. We get shocked by the frailty of what we always knew was a frail thing. Our bodies and our minds and our hearts, we can only carry so much. And yet, in the midst of this, God says the answer The answer isn't to try to transcend your weakness. It's not, right, to diet more, work out more, study more, right? It's to say, no, no, don't put, don't invest unchanging hope for what you can count on to be stable in something that's fading. Instead, put your hope in what doesn't fade, right? Put your hope in what you can count on in this life and beyond it. What does he say? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, He says, look, God has made promises to you that you can absolutely count on. God has made promises to you that he will not forget or turn his back on. Even when you get old, even when you break down, even when you get sick, even when you collapse, you can count on the promises of God. But when Isaiah says the word of God stands forever, I think he's talking particularly about God's promise to his people. Right, it'd be easy for Isaiah, Isaiah who spent 39 chapters up to this point, saying God's going to rescue you, God's going to protect you, God's going to save you, to now when he's ministering and speaking to a people in exile. You know, they might be asking, Isaiah, what happened to all that promise? What happened to all those promises of rescue and redemption and eternal life and all of those things? And he says, no, 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 God's word stands forever. It can outlast this exile. It can outlast our losses. It can outlast our frailty. Hezekiah won't see it. His sons won't see it. His grandchildren's grandchildren will see it, right? That the promise can be counted on. And God had made incredible promises to Israel. And friends, God has made incredible promises to us, right? At Advent, we don't just look back right, at the baby in the manger and the wise men and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, right? We're not just looking back at Jesus' first coming. We're also looking ahead to his return. When all of those promises that we long for, right, the new heavens and the new earth, perfect justice, perfect righteousness, our bodies healed, the world healed, the world made new, right, that we are waiting for his extraordinary promises, and his promises will stand forever. And then finally, the third voice, the voice that says, behold your God. Verse 9, 
Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Notice the voice that's speaking now is no longer just Isaiah's voice. It's the voice of Jerusalem, right? Zion, Jerusalem, the city on a hill, the the seat of God's people. He says, look, now all of Jerusalem, you're no longer just listening to the voice of God's comfort. You're rising up and, and preaching it. You're the one saying to the other cities of Judah and ultimately to the nations of the world, behold our God. He said he would comfort us and he has comforted us. He said his promises would last forever, and they have stood forever. We have been comforted, and now we're adding our voice to the chorus of voices that's crying out, behold your God, look at the God who we've trusted and who's redeemed us. And friends, this is the way the gospel works in our lives. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.4. Paul urges them, we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Right, that the way that the gospel works in us and in the world is that we receive comfort from God so that we can then extend the comforting hands of God to our neighbors and to our world. Right, we don't, our posture towards our neighbors isn't one of, oh, you're suffering? That must be because you're doing it wrong. That must be because you haven't been faithful enough or good enough. No, our posture is one of, oh man, you need comfort. Boy, do I need comfort. Let me tell you about the mess that that my life is. How desperately I need a comfort in my life and where I found it in Jesus. Our good shepherd who gathered me and saved me and rescued my life as we just sang. And then extending that comfort to others, calling others. Look at what they cry out. Behold your God. He comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. I love these verses because I love that he puts together two things that in our minds don't go together. He says, look at God with his powerful arm coming in judgment, right? Look at the warrior Messiah coming with judgment in his eyes, and He comes like a shepherd, tenderly to gather us to himself. He'll gather the babies to him. He'll gather those that are with young, and he will lead us like a shepherd. But the one who's being announced here is both strong and tender, powerful and compassionate. And that Jesus marries both of those things, right? Lion-like strength, lamb-like tenderness, warrior-like power shepherd-like compassion. Because he's a warrior, because he has all power, because he's the king, he is powerful enough to handle whatever you bring to him. Right? Because he's powerful, it means that he can. Right? He can heal, he can deliver, he can set things right. But because he's compassionate, we can trust him. We can trust that not only can he, but he will. That he doesn't look on our weakness with anger. He doesn't look on our sin with an initial judgment. But that he moves towards us in mercy and in compassion. There's that great scene in the gospel where the, uh, the paralyzed man comes to Jesus and he says, I know that if you're willing, you can make me well. 
right? He doesn't question Jesus' power. What he questions is his willingness. Hey, look, I know lots of powerful people that wouldn't lift a finger to help me. I know you can, but will you? Do you care enough? And in this image of Isaiah, we see one who can and one who will, right? One who's strong enough for you to count on and one who's ever and always willing because of his love for you. And when we meet that one, that strong shepherd of our souls, we do cry out, behold your God. This is what God is like. Right? God doesn't leave us in the darkness of this creation to guess at his character, to guess what he's like. He says, look at Jesus. Look at the good shepherd. Look at him on the cross. Look at him in the empty tomb. He comes for you. And that we can receive that comfort and then offer it to others. C.S. Lewis reminds us in his reflections on the Psalms that worship, receiving by faith the grace of God, like anything else in life, is never complete, it's never perfect, until it's shared with others. Right, evangelism, right, witness, bearing witness to God can feel scary and weird and overwhelming. But Lewis says it ought to be as natural as it is when we go up to somebody at the water cooler at work and say, hey, have you seen the new show on Netflix? I just watched it and it's amazing, you should check it out. Here, here's what Lewis wrote, this is before Netflix, so he uses different metaphors. He says, the world rings with the praise that lovers heap on their lovers, that readers give to their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, food, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical figures, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that it's magnificent? I think we ought to delight to praise, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So the voice that cries out, comfort my people, now says, you cry out too. Cry out the good news from the highest mountaintop. Behold your God, powerful and gracious. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to lend our voices to the chorus that bears witness to your glory and your praise. Lord Jesus, it matters so very much to us that you came to us and that you come to us in power, announced by angels, transfigured in glory, powerfully working miracles, and you come to us in humility, in weakness, and in tenderness, so that we might know that you are willing and able, that you are strong enough to save, and willing in your compassion to come to us, to be gentle with us, to redeem us and to lead us into our promised home. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org. 